Hello, I'm Tom Harper. And I'm Diana Thomas. Welcome to That Wilbur Smith Show. A podcast about the historical, geographical, natural and human background to the world of Wilbur Smith. Then he looked northwards, to the land mass that crouched like a great rock sphinx, dark and inscrutable upon the horizon. This was the Agulhas Cape, the southernmost tip of the African continent. Africa. The sound of that mysterious name on his own lips raised goose pimples along his arms, and made the thick, dark hair prickle off the back of his neck. Africa. The uncharted land of dragons and other dreadful creatures, who ate the flesh of men, and of dark-skinned savages who also ate men's flesh and wore their bones as decoration. Africa, the land of gold and ivory and slaves and other treasures, all waiting for a man bold enough to seek them out and, perhaps, to perish in the endeavour. Hal felt daunted, yet fascinated by the sound and promise of that name, its menace and challenge. That was a reading from Birds of Prey, which was the ninth book that Wilbur Smith wrote about the Courtney family. But it's actually chronologically the earliest volume in the saga. It's the first beginnings of the Courtney dynasty. It's a great swashbuckling novel set in the late 17th century. And it tells the tale of Sir Francis Courtney and his son Hal. They're the first of the Courtneys ever to set foot in Africa. Um... And it's set against the backdrop of what is now known, somewhat controversially, as the Dutch Golden Age. So, um, Tom, can you tell us a bit about that period? Yeah. So I think the first thing to point out is that Wilbur is always um, quite uh, vague about years. He, d- he doesn't like to be pinned down too much. So I think in the, in the author's note of Birds of Prey, he talks about this being set in, in the mid-17th century. It's actually mid to late 17th century. Um and, but it is set against the, the background um, of, of uh, what's known as the Dutch Golden Age. The Dutch Golden Age is uh, a flourishing of what's now the Netherlands. Um, you can argue about the dates, but I think the most commonly accepted start date is 1579, um, when uh, the various states of Holland, of, of, sorry, of the Netherlands, uh, for, uh, formed the Union of Utrecht. Uh, which is basically a uh, military alliance to fight against Spain, which has historically been the uh, the dominant power um, that, that runs the Netherlands. Um, and it goes to around 1700. The date I liked for the finish, for the end of it, is 1715, uh, when the Dutch Republic can no longer pay its debts, it defaults on its debts, and that really um, when it's over. So it's just over 130 odd years um, covering most of the, of the 17th century, when Holland, sorry, the Netherlands, um, undergoes this extraordinary expansion of trade, of uh, wealth, uh, of culture, um, obviously all the, the famous Dutch masters, and for a while is this tiny, uh, very precarious country right on the edge of Europe, is, is one of the most powerful and significant nations in the world. 
Um, so that's that's the Dutch golden age. And and I mean, as you said, we are still. I mean, this year there's a huge Vermeer exhibition in in Holland, and this is also the time of Rembrandt and all the great Dutch uh, landscape painters. But the question is, first, can we call it a golden age? Um, the uh, Amsterdam Museum has now taken the phrase golden age away from its um, permanent exhibition of what it now calls group portraits of the 17th century, because they say the term golden age ignores the many negative sides of the 17th century, such as poverty, war, forced labor, and human trafficking. And one of the things that is a major topic in um, in Birds of Prey, and it runs right through it, and many of the characters, is slavery. Um, and this was a time of in which among the things that made Holland rich were slaves. Yeah, and that's going to be controversial inevitably, as well as the other aspects you mentioned, like the fact that, you know, by far from everyone in the Netherlands is living a golden existence <laughs> through the 17th century. Um, I think there's two reasons that I personally am quite happy with the label of the golden age. I think one is that the Dutch themselves used that term contemporaneously. So as early as 1644, you've got um, poets and writers talking about this is the dawn of a new golden age. This is our golden age. So it's actually a contemporaneous description, unlike, say, something like the Renaissance or the Middle Ages, which are later labels applied by historians. I do also think that with all the caveats that you mentioned, this is an extraordinary period in Holland's history, the most extraordinary period in Holland's history. And if we're going to ever allow that any period, any civilization ever has a golden age, then to me, that kind of combination of power, of wealth, of culture, I mean, these are the yardsticks of civilizations through history, whether they're right or not by our modern standards, that that's how we judge um, civilizations. Um, yeah, it's it's extraordinary, um, and and this is this is Holland's moment in the sun, um, and I think if that doesn't qualify as a golden age, then nothing in history ever would. So yeah, I'm happy with the label. I mean, it's a bit like it's a bit like um, Athens in 500 BC. Yeah, which which also is a culture built on slavery. Right? Totally, and but at the end of the hand, you've got the Parthenon, you've got Plato, and you've got Socrates. So um, you know, um, I mean, um. The other thing that's really interesting about this, and it again comes out, in, in Birds of Prey, there's the looming presence all the time of the Dutch East India Company. And when the Dutch characters living on the Cape of Good Hope um, are being threatened by the power of authority, it's not a king or any aristocrats who threaten them. What they're frightened of is the 17, who are basically the board of directors of, of the Dutch East India Company. And it was kind of the first multinational company. I mean, it spread its, its tentacles, as it were, and its business all over the world. Yeah, it's an extraordinary um, company and lots of firsts. So I think it's the first company to develop shareholdings and actually develops them because they can't afford to pay um, the dividends that they promised uh, to their subscribers. So they issue pieces of paper instead, which which then start to be traded um, which then become the shares. So it's a, an important company in lots of ways. I think what's interesting about the Dutch East India Company, uh, which again, modern kind of uh, observers of capitalism maybe won't be so surprised by, 
is that it actually starts as an attempt to be anti-competitive. So you've got various uh, cities in Holland sending missions and, and voyages off to the East Indies to bring back um, the spices that they want. And because there are all these different expeditions going, there's more demand. So the locals in the East Indies put up their prices because there's, there's more competition um, for, for buyers. It's a seller's market. And so the Dutch say, well, this is no good. There's no point of sending you know, 17 different expeditions to then uh, barter, uh, compete against each other uh, and drive up prices. So they formed this East India Company, basically to, so that the Dutch aren't outbidding themselves and driving up prices for the, for the goods. Um, so as, yeah, it's, it's a fundamentally anti-competitive uh, venture from the start. So here we have this East India Company, and it's been set up, as you say, to to essentially drive prices down in the East Indies by only having one buyer for the, all those. But what was it about Holland? As you say, it's a very small country, which which basically is underwater the moment this pump stopped working because it's all been most of the important um, economic areas of Holland have been reclaimed. So. How does this tiny little country, as opposed to the might of France at that time, or the might of Spain, and the beginning to grow power of, of, of Britain, what is it about Holland that makes it so successful, disproportionately successful? I mean, that's kind of the 64 billion gilder question, isn't it? And I think historians, even, and again, fascinatingly, even at the time, you know, English people would go to Holland, the, the Netherlands, they'd look around and they say, how on earth is this happening? This is extraordinary. And, and they would try to understand it. So again, contemporaries recognized that there was something uh, almost kind of, you know, this lightning in a bottle that's happening and, and, and they struggled to understand it. Now, there's lots of potential explanations. Um, I, think, I think the most plausible one for me is that it's just the pressure. So uh, we, we, the Dutch Golden Age, they're basically at war for almost the whole thing. You have basically the 80 years war, and then that leads seamlessly into the 30 years war. Um, and 110 years altogether. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, you've got Anglo-Dutch wars, you've got Anglo-French wars. Um, Holland is stuck between um, France, uh, which is a massive continental power in the, later in this period under Louis XIV, who's obviously got big expansionist ideas. Uh, they've historically they've been uh, governed by Spain, which is another major power, and just over the channel they've got uh, England, Britain, um, which is and the Habsburg Empire in Germany and the Habsburg Empire in Germany, indeed. So uh, they are hemmed in on all sides, and they are fighting for their survival uh, almost all the time, uh, and that's what drives a lot of the. Um, the, the political developments is that the, you know, the, the, the Union of Utrecht is fundamentally a military alliance because so to a sort of self-defense treaty. Um, and so I think that, as we see you know, in every century, including the 20th century, wars do spur innovation and they spur a lot of um, developments that would take much longer um, in, in peacetime. Uh, I think the other thing is is trade. Actually, it, trade the, the Netherlands in this period is sort of uniquely well positioned to capitalise on trade because there's, as you said, most of the country's underwater uh, for a lot of the time. It's not a sort of fertile agricultural country, so they've always had to import an awful lot of their foodstuffs. Uh, and and the way to do that is for a country located where the Netherlands is is by water, either on rivers uh, with sort of intra-European continental trade or by sea across, you know, across the Baltic. 
So they've developed this very strong merchant marine, which then gives them the shipping capacity to move further and further into trade um, at a time when the previous uh, sort of incumbent as uh, the great uh, colonial trade power, Portugal, is declining. Uh, and so they're able to grab an awful lot of the trade that Portugal previously had. And the next player, which, which obviously will take over from the Netherlands uh, as the preeminent European trading power, Britain, hasn't quite got its act together. So lots of things kind of come together. I think I think there's something else which is really interesting, which is which is Holland is a really good argument for free markets and free expression, because the free markets are explained by by the they are they're a kind of a bourgeois. Um, they're not a society run by an aristocracy. They're a society that's run by 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 a, a middle class. But also, they because they're Protestant and they're surrounded by Catholic countries, people have come to them from all over Europe, clever, ambitious people who could not survive in Catholic countries because they were themselves Protestant or because their views, their philosophical views, were, I mean, Rene Descartes is there, Spinoza is there. I mean, it's an incredible philosophy as well as, as well as Rembrandt and Vermeer. But you also have bright minds, scientists, tech, technology is developing clocks, all sorts of things. So that, so that you really have, you really show the advantages of being open to people coming to your country who can bring you something. And then as it were, giving them full reign and your own people full reign to exploit their talents as best they can. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very advanced society in, in that respect, well ahead of, of, of the much more repressive countries all around it. Yeah, and in fact, one of the, the, Union, the Union of Utrecht, which sort of kickstarts the whole thing, it's interesting, it's a military alliance, but it also enshrines freedom of conscience. Uh, and as you say, that then attracts it. Um, Huguenots from France uh, as they get persecuted, Jews from all over Europe, um, and also Antwerp at the time has been uh, the, the preeminent port in Europe, and that gets uh, basically invaded by the Spanish. And so a lot of uh, merchants uh, and what we nowadays call human capital moves from Antwerp to Amsterdam. And, and that, again, sows the seeds of a lot of the, the trade that then you know, centres on the Netherlands. I think, I mean, just to take us back to Wilburn, um, the Dutch have established by this point, they're the first people to colonize um, the Cape, yeah. um, Cape Good Hope. Um, and, and it's really just essentially, it's a staging post for their ships as they head all the way out to the Far East. Because the other thing about the Dutch is that they're in Yokohama Bay. I mean, they are the only people, uh, only Western people for, I think the best, but at least 200 years between, between the mid 17th and the mid 19th century, whom the Japanese, will allow to come into their territory, which really shows you the extent of their reach. And, and, and of course, a lot of the, a lot of the um, East Indies were, were um, uh, Far East, were under Dutch control right up to the Second World War. And they have, of course, Caribbean colonies. So they've, they've really gone a very long way. Um, but just to sort of say, change the subject, what interests me about the Cape of Good Hope, um, and they, they have been fairly horrible to the indigenous peoples, um, but the indigenous peoples um, are not, as we would now imagine, uh, the, 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 the population of, of South Africa as it is. They're the Hottentots, the San people, who are the kind of the original human beings. They are the closest people to, to, um, to 
the original human human Homo sapiens would have crossed from East Africa into the Middle East and thence populated the whole world and from whom we are all descended. And and one of the things which I remember when I first read this is that one of the things I loved about Wilbur Smith and I love working with him, but also when I was just a fan, was that he tells you stuff that you didn't know, that his history is really fascinating, his ethnography is really fascinating, and that, and that you get different perspectives reading his books into history than you would do well, just by reading history books. Yeah, and I think the way he dramatizes the uh, sort of the settlement of Cape Town, which is I think it's sixteen early sixteen fifties that uh, yeah. Cape Town gets settled, um, and you've got the Courtneys there when they're captured by, by the Dutch, being for, used as manual labourers to build the castle, um, and yes. it's kind of built with their sweat and blood, uh, and and that castle is still there today. Um, so it's, it's uh, again, one of these symbols that Wilbur uses to uh, dramatise the, the history that's going on there. Yeah, and of course, and, 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 and the Dutch there are using um, um, uh, Asian slaves from, from what we would now think as the Philippines and, and, that, and that part of the world, who they've, been, who they've brought over to be their housemaids, their, you know, their coach drivers. And, they, and, and so this, and this also shows that, as it were, the kind of the fact that the the there's multiple ethnicities involved in this. Yeah. Um, that it's that we have a picture purely of the kind of the the West African trade from West Africa to to the Americas, but of course it's a much more complicated thing. Yeah, there's and, a great moment where I think it's Governor Vandervelde is eating a samosa. Um, and and it's so incongruous to, to our modern sensibilities because it they feel like two Africa should be one thing and samosas belong in a different kind of mental space. But actually, I think what is being dramatised in this book, and I think throughout the Courtney series, is the way in which in this period and then on all these parts of the world that we think we're off doing their own thing are, are, are tied together by these trading links and particularly by um well by companies like the dutch east india company and of course by um great seafarers like the Courtney's. yeah i mean i think people underestimate the degree to which which cultures and trade change i mean, I mean go right across the world i come i was researching the vikings for reasons i can't now remember about it but and Oh, I know. I was, I was writing books about William the Conqueror, David Churchill. Yes, um, but the Vikings in Viking tombs—they've discovered as were Chinese objects mm. because the Vikings um, went right through Russia and down to Constantinople, where they formed the so-called Varangian Guard in the very early Middle Ages. And then Constantinople was kind of at the end of the Silk Silk Road, and so so the kind of the lines that bind human beings together and different cultures together are much more ancient and much more widespread than people think. And, and, and you get in Birds of Prey. So how Courtney, the hero, um, falls in love uh, with um, the captured and trafficked uh, Sukina, who comes from Indonesia, who's now working as, the, as a sort of housemaid to the governor in the Cape of Good Hope. And his closest um, companion is Aboli, who's, um, an, I suppose, he's described as one of the people of the forest, because, of course, in those days, there simply weren't countries, as we would now think of them. But I imagine him as being probably a Central African, what we would now think of as maybe Uganda or Rwanda, somewhere like that. Um, so, again, you have the interactions in the book of multiple um, um, different races and but each i think 
given kind of what you might call creative parity that that the that the the dutch characters the indonesian characters the african characters and the british characters are all written with the same energy and the same commitment and they're not particularly the fact that they belong to different cultures doesn't affect, if you like affect the way that wilbur writes them or is that we would write them at, with Wilbur. yes i think that's to wilbur's kind of great credit as an author but it's also actually i think reasonably historically true in that all the ideologies of racism that we're um, you know, depressingly familiar with today, I think don't really exist in this period. I think there's much more of a, people are valued by their sort of, their, by their culture or by their civilization um, or by their wealth uh, or by their power, um, but a, a sort of dogmatic racist ideology um, that just pigeonholes people literally by the color of their skin um, doesn't exist yet. Uh, and so I think things are more fluid. Uh, yeah, I think that's sort of true. And I mean, I, th- I think the Courtney's are certainly portrayed as being very colorblind, as you might now say. But it's also true that that, for example, within the colony, and indeed within some of the villains in the in the in the, the white, the Earl of Cumbrae, and various other, that there is that there's a, a kind of automatic assumption that that white people are superior to black or Asian people. But of course, this leads the white people who are stupid enough to believe that to greatly underestimate the people they're up against. So that says where the bad guys are seen to not profit at all from their from their racism because they endlessly then get thwarted by by the people they've underestimated. Like Sukina, for example, is endlessly is, is you know um getting one over on on her mistress or her master. And and Aboli also is is often underestimated and consequently um, is able to achieve things that people hadn't expected. Yeah, and it's uh, in a number of Wilbur's books, they are sort of cautionary tales. (laughs) If if you saunter around the world with this superior white privilege attitude, then then you will come a cropper. Um, and, and and it's hugely satisfying for the reader, of course, when when that happens. We we love seeing these these boorish racist characters you know get their just desserts. I think the other thing about Birds of Prey, which I hope is going to become a theme through 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 these podcasts, as it certainly is in his books, is Wilbur's incredible capacity for describing um, the geography, the topography, the plants, and above all the animals of Africa. I mean, as a reader coming to him, you know, well, God, terrifyingly, more than 35 years ago, um, immediately strikes you that when he's talking about what it's like to be close to an elephant, it's because he has, in fact, been close to an elephant. When he's describing the look in an Elan's eye as, it's, as it dies um, uh, uh, because a hunter needs to kill it for food, you know that he's seen those dying animals, or you know that he's smelled the lion's carrion-infested breath, you know. And I think that's and that, that's something which which is is so vivid in his work, and I'm sure it's something which people love about it. Yeah, and in a sense, that was his um, great, I don't want to say unique selling point, because his storytelling is second to none. So that, um, but definitely... There, there are other great storytellers out there, but there's no one who is writing that authentically about Africa um, when, when Wilbur started doing it, I think. 
Yes, it makes it terribly difficult for those of us, <laughs> those of us who are kind of working in his footsteps. It's very, very hard to um, to match that. It's one of the challenges of being of being of being a co-writer. But anyway, back to the Dutch Golden Age, which um, we're supposed to be concentrating on. What do you think it was that this brief flowering happens, and then it ends? Is it just the fact that, that as it were, they're performing a kind of trick? that can only survive for so long before, it's, before they're simply crushed by superior powers? Because, you know, they, there, are, you know there, are very many, there are fewer Dutch people than there are Spanish or British or French people. Or was there something internal that made the whole thing collapse? I mean, what was it that, that, that as were Holland, the Netherlands, reverted back to um, a kind of a scale that was, that was more traditional? Yeah, again... You can look at lots of different things. I think there is an element of just gravity asserting itself. Yeah. I think the whole project is built on this creative tension because you've got the different states of the Netherlands which have to combine um, and work together. And it's like that classic creative tension in a sense it's like the Beatles, where for a while that creative tension creates something amazing, but ultimately the tension sort of wins out over the creativity um, and, and it sort of pulls itself apart. So I think there's definitely elements of that. It was, it's hard to sustain that level of um, ambition and, and achievement when, when you're having to bring along lots of kind of disparate elements. Um, so I think that's part of it. I mean, there is a, a financial reason that, of course, they are... Um, they borrow a lot of money. I think by the time, as I say, seven fifteen, when they default, they they're spending more than half their national income on on servicing their debts, and they they never have huge armies. Uh, they they have to borrow them. You know, they can fund themselves. They have to borrow the money to pay for them. Uh, so in a sense, it's you know the Dutch golden age is kind of bought on tick, uh, and and eventually the bill comes due. Uh, but of course, the other thing is that other people see what they're doing, and and they want some of it too. Most most obviously, um, yeah. and 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 of course, Britain in those days, Britain in those days has many advantages the Netherlands do, because because it's also a seafaring country. It, it, it's open to the whole oceans. It's also a Protestant country, which is getting in um, migrants, Huguenots and Jews, to, to quote some of the ones went to Holland. And is very open, and it completely grasps the idea of the joint stock company, and just just amps it up to the power of because it fundamentally is a bigger country, with more people, you know, more resources, and uh, and the other thing I think which cripples Britain in the end is that when you go abroad and you start having colonies and you start having sea lanes and you start needing to protect those colonies and to protect those sea lanes, it becomes a very expensive business. And there's, I think all empires, I mean, the Roman empire is another example. Yeah. I mean, there's a praise from Edward Gibbons decline and fall. It's something like the Roman empire collapsed under the weight of its own greatness. Um, and it's that sort of thing, isn't it? Yes. I mean, then I think that happens to, you know, it took the British empire rather longer to do it than the Dutch. But that said, I mean, they kept their, they kept most of their possessions um, for, for, for say hundreds of years, and indeed still have. I mean, I, I don't know if um, Curacao and, and 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 the other uh, Caribbean islands are still part of Holland in the way that the French Caribbean islands are part of France, but they're still Dutch speaking. I think they're um, they're Aruba. They're still Dutch speaking islands. So the the influence of Holland still still um, 
you know, is, is felt all over the world. And of course, they're still a fantastic trading nation. I think the other thing, um, as, as Brits, we have to bear in mind is that there's a way in which um, the, the, the Dutch kind of win even when they lose, because of course, in 1688, they, William III um, of, of Holland, um, comes, it, it basically invades Britain uh, and becomes king. So in the same way that I think someone once said that the ultimate vindication of Thatcherism was Tony Blair, in the same way the ultimate success of Holland is of the Netherlands is actually um, that it sort of transplants itself into the UK. And traditionally, British histories show the Glorious Revolution of 1688 as um, an, a great a spontaneous outpouring of uh, Britishness uh, against the kind of um, tyrann- tyrannical tendencies of James II. Uh, but if you read the Dutch histories, it's very much they were worried about the British and the French forming an alliance against the Netherlands. So they put together the, their fleet and their army and they go off to England and invade um, and, and basically seize the crown for themselves and therefore prevent the, uh, Britain and France forming an alliance against them. And so the kind of Protestant, mercantilist, um, free trading country that um, that emerges from that is very much, it's not just on the Dutch model, it's actually led by Dutch people um, in opposition to the sort of Francophile, um, Catholic-looking um, James II. So, it, yeah, it, in the same way that sort of dinosaurs become birds, I think, you know, you can argue that maybe the uh, the Dutch Golden Age transmutes into the uh, the British Golden Age. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's, it's safe to say because 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 um, certainly when I was being taught history, it was basically a long series of the British duffing people up, um, all, all the way from all the way from you know kind of the Battle of Cressy through the Battle of Britain. You know, like sort of five hundred years of untrammeled successful duffing up. But in fact, the the Dutch um, were probably the last people who pretty comprehensively walked all over all over the British, which actually. I think, this is a silly thing to say, but, but one of the important things about Wilbur, although his characters, his main protagonists, often come from British families, the Courtney's, who, who run through the whole of the Wilbur saga, um, uh, are Devonian. They come from Devon in the West Country originally. Yeah. Both they and he become African. I mean, he was an African. I think it's really important. I mean... You know, he had a house in London. I first met him in a flat, I think, in Mar- Marylebone somewhere. No, not Marylebone, um, Bayswater. Anyway, and he still he held, had a house in London to the day he died. Um, and so it's tempting because he writes about English characters to think he might, as it were, be British by, by outlook. And he would have had something of a British education in what was then Rhodesia. But fundamentally... He's African. He's a white African. And I think that's such an important thing. And it goes back to what you were saying about the way he looks at the world. He does not look at the world through what you might call the guilty prism of of British or American whiteness. He looks at it as one African writing about other Africans. And and I think that's something which which is going to come up again and again as we go through all his various books, because above all, he is the great storyteller of Africa, um, or at least of the white experience in Africa. Yeah, and it's interesting that 
I mean, as, as authors, we, I think, are both very much aware that how you introduce characters is, is so fundamental to the art of storytelling. And it's really interesting that Birds of Prey, which is chronologically the very earliest book in the Courtney series, um, although not written in that sequence, and it opens with the Courtney's sort of in media res. They're, they're off the coast of Africa on, the, on their ship. They've been there for, I think, 65 days patrolling. Um, and yeah, they are Devonian, but that's not important to their identity, really, uh, in this book. Uh, I think then in Monsoon, he does give you um, a few dozen pages of them back home in Devon in High Weald, but then they leave never to return again, really. Um, so, I mean, it, across Birds of Prey and Monsoon and Blue Horizon, which is um, his original prequel trilogy, as it were, of, of, of the Courtenays um, in this period, I mean, I, there's probably not more than 100 pages out of several thousand of them actually in, in Britain because it's just not important to their identity. You know, Africa is, is, is where they belong and that's where we meet them. So um, insofar as Birds of Prey does have any specific historical date, it's the end of the Anglo-Dutch War in 1667. And the story revolves, to some extent, um, around Sir Sir Francis Courtney, who's a sea captain, and he has what's called a letter of mark from the king, which is basically giving him the license to, um, to attack Dutch ships at sea, because at the time the letter of mark is issued, the Anglo-Dutch war is going on. But by the time the book begins, the war has ended, but it's ended kind of several thousand miles away from where our characters are. So of course the news hasn't reached them yet. And without the letter of mark, they become pirates. And I think the thing that's really interesting about this, apart from the fact that it's a rattling good yarn, is, is that you were talking about a time in which, in which the kind of demarcations between trade and piracy, between between being a soldier and being a gangster, are, are much less clearly drawn than they are now. And I mean, to what extent, Tom, do you think that that, as it were, you could almost say that all of colonialism was to some extent an act of piracy as well as an act of trade. Uh, yes, and I think you'd probably struggle to draw the line between those two things. Um, I mean, it's interesting that it's a mid-century, I think the Dutch East Indy, Indy Company has something like 11,000 employees and 8,000 of them are soldiers um, because it's fundamentally a, 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 a military operation. Um, and it, we, I think we mentioned earlier, that a lot of, and this goes for the, for the British Empire as well, but they don't start off as kind of you send in your army to conquer a place, you send in your merchants um, to trade with a place, and gradually they discover that they can get better terms uh, and, and more merchandise and less hassle if they uh, you know, bring, bring a few cannons to the negotiations uh, and then gradually sort of spread out from there. And, and since that's how Britain later conquers India. So, so yeah, it's, um, it's a very pure form of capitalism, really, where, you know, you know, anything goes, the spirit of free enterprise is anything you can get away with. Um, and I think Wilbur was always quite 
open about the fact that the Courtenays exist in this tradition too. Obviously, we generally see them on the side of, of right, but um, they, uh, the fact that uh, the sort of the family history goes back to the days of Sir Francis Drake, um, and I think Francis Courtney is named after Francis Drake, that uh, and it's Drake who presents the the great Neptune sword to the to the Courtney ancestors. Um, which I think is itself stolen, is it not, or taken taken as booty? Yes, from... something like that. Yeah. So uh, he, Wilbur's very much plugging them into this that kind of intersection of where sort of piracy, trade, and naval power meet. Um, and as you say, it, uh, you said at the beginning, it's it's a matter of dates. So you know, in in June, you're a loyal servant of the king, enacting your country's foreign policy, and by September, uh, if you're doing the same thing, you're a pirate. Indeed, and you and you get horribly tortured and 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 hung, drawn, and quartered for it, because the wicked Earl of Cumbrae has burned your letter of mark, and therefore you can't prove that you are you are acting legitimately as someone who goes around sinking Dutch ships, as it were, rather capturing Dutch ships. And actually, that's an interesting thing that they're much more interested in capturing a ship than they are in sinking it. They, in fact, they specifically don't want to sink ships because the ships are filled with all the the plunder and the booty. That they want to get for themselves. I mean that that, that and, and indeed and quite an interesting thing is that is that in the inventory of, of one of the of the first ship that Sir Francis Courtney takes, you kind of get a sense of what the Dutch are getting from their empire because it's filled with spice, it's filled with gold, it's filled with rare woods from the East Indies. And of course these are among the things which made which kind of fueled and and funded this golden age. I mean, it's, it's plunder. Is 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 well again. Where do you draw the line between things you've purchased and things you've plundered? It. Yeah, I mean, by the time you've kind of raised, you know, you've gone to some island of the East Indies, kind of raised the local population, uh, local you know settlement to the ground, enslaved the population, and killed most of them. Um, I think that counts as plunder. Yeah, yeah. Um, even though it's going to call me a wokey, but I think that counts as plunder. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, the other thing is that. Um, I, again, it's something historians debate a lot, uh, particularly now. Is to, you know, is is the Dutch Golden Age entirely built on slavery uh, and plunder, or is it more than that? And economically, I think the statistics show that it never it sort of this kind of overseas trade never accounts for more than ten percent, or maybe as little as five percent of the actual sort of economy. But it is. I think it's almost like the seed capital, uh, and even early on, they they raid uh, the Portuguese commerce because uh, Portuguese taking gold out of West Africa, uh, and it's that gold that they take, which then allows them to build more ships, go further afield, um, and expand their trading networks. So it is kind of the seed capital that that allows them to expand like that. I think the other thing that that either you get. In, in terms of the Dutch in Birds of Prey is the actual characters of the Dutch characters. You have, I mean, there are three who are all very kind of classic Wilbur characters. The first one you meet is Katinka, who is this fabulously beautiful, blonde, busty, sex-crazed um, daughter of a high-up official in the uh, East India Company who's been married to this enormous Jabba the Hutt blubbery, um, colonial governor called Van der Velde. And I mean, and there you get, I mean, okay, let's just start with Katinka. <laughs> Among the many ways in which Wilbur was not politically correct was his, his descriptions of his, well, actually of both male and female characters. He's unabashed in telling you just what makes them sexy. Um, and down to the body parts and the sweats and the odors and the liquids, and let's not get into the detail on a, on a polite podcast. 
Um, and I mean, he does write these very vivid female characters. And to do him justice, those female characters, as you were, have a female gaze on the male characters. So you see, you see both things. You see how, how fabulously sexy she is to him and also how wonderfully hunky he is to her. Yeah, and in fact, it's really interesting that when I tell people uh, that, you know, that I work with Wilbur, a lot of people spontaneously share their memories of, of what Wilbur means to them. Uh, and a lot of those people are women um, who remember, you know, I read Wilbur as a teenager um, and, you know, that was uh, kind of my making me weak at the knees. And that was you know, <laughs> a sort of quite a sort of rite of passage for them. So and even today, I think um, there's a huge female readership for Wilbur, which yeah, yeah. even though you think of them and you look at the covers maybe and you think that these are stereotypical kind of men going off fighting sort of books but actually as you say i mean think of a classic example but they're examples all through the the, the works of these incredibly strong female characters doing whatever it takes to get by um and and really making a huge impression um yeah, and, and Wilbur has a real gift for drawing those kinds of characters. And, and I think the other thing is that they're very, they, I mean, they have a lot to them. So Katinka is, is I mean, she's a kind of a wicked witch type of character. Um, and so she's, she's a villainess. And so she's manipulative and she entirely uses her sexuality to get what she wants. And then she meets a fantastically gory death um, when she's caught in the act um, <laughs> in bed with the executioner of Cape Town. And slow, John. It's, it's just and the, and it literally down to the blood on the floor and and her husband and her relationship with her husband and her contempt for her husband, and and Governor Van der Velder I think represents the kind of ultimate Dutch burger, um, kind of wallowing in in all the money and the food and the and the kind of servants and everything that that the that the quotes unquote golden age has provided yeah i think um I, i'm interested i don't actually know if wilbur thought in these terms if, if uh, i think he probably just went for characters who fitted yeah. the story and fitted his kind of purpose as an author but you're right vanderbilt does function if you want to see him that way as a kind of um a stand-in kind of allegory for the the, the excesses of the, of the Dutch Golden Age, and that you know this this small country has gorged itself on the kind of the yes. profits of the world uh, and become this very unattractive, um, political, manipulative um, character. I mean, the third the third key Dutch character is, is Colonel Schroeder, who is who is is a soldier, obviously. And and is is going to command the um, the Dutch troops who are actually um, mostly um, taken from various native populations, both African and Asian, um, on the Cape. And he's a fascinating character, and again a very Wilbur character, because on the one hand, um, he's he's obsessed with um, with Katinka, and spoiler alert, it doesn't end well. Um, but so he's obsessed by her and driven by her and also wildly jealous of Hal Courtney, who also has a thing for Katinka. Um, but what's fascinating about him is, on the one hand, he's he's sort of a dandy in the sense that he dresses, like a lot of soldiers do, very conscious to make himself look as fabulous as possible. He's very ruthless. He's very determined. He's very arrogant. He becomes very embittered. 
Um, but at the same time, he has a kind of a code of honor. And interestingly, Hal Courtney, his great enemy, works by the same code. And one of the things that happens in the book is they kind of don't want to have the final battle between them. And so they can be sort of conducted in a sort of gentlemanly form so that they, both their honor is satisfied. And, and again, that's a very, that, that sense of masculine honor, masculine pride, and sort of pig-headed determination to have things their way. Again, that just runs right through Wilbur's male characters for good and for ill, because the good guys are often the Courtney's, goodness knows, are, are pig-headed and amoral and proud of it, you know. Yes, and I, I think that's actually why the, the women make some of the most memorable characters, because Wilbur isn't afraid of making the Courtney's occasionally quite... Um, not obtuse because because they're all they're always uh, kind of ahead of the game, but they they definitely have moments where where they're um, kind of acting first and thinking afterwards. Uh, whereas a lot of the female characters, obviously, um, because they don't have that physical power uh, and society is constraining them in certain roles, they have to be much more thoughtful about how they go about things. Um, and and yeah, and you're right, Schroeder definitely is a sort of a foil to how um, and. I think that in in monsoon as well you get the pirate i think it's called al alf um and he again is you start out thinking he's going to be the big villain and actually by the time they meet him actually there's almost a sorrow uh, a sadness when he dies because he has been this um worthy adversary and a man yeah, yeah. Uh, of his own kind of um ability and honor so yeah and and, and that i think probably will understands that adds to the the the, the drama and the emotion of it all, that they're not just kind of two-dimensional ciphers um, who are there to be um, speared on the end of a sword. They're actually, um, you know, they, they have this these complexities of, them, of their own. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 bad, the baddies have, have good sides to their characters and the goodies have plenty of bad sides to their characters. I just, I, I think that, just going back to Birds of Prey, I really do think in all sorts of ways, it's a really archetypal, classic Wilbur Smith book. And actually, because as you say, it begins the Courtney saga, um, it's as good a place as anywhere for anyone who's new to Wilbur Smith to start. You'll be riotously entertained from beginning to end. Somewhat offended if you have delicate 21st century sensibilities, but I think you'll find that the story is a kind of a guilty pleasure if you do feel guilty about that sort of thing that will keep you gripped all the way to the very end. I've I've always um, held with the people who say there are no guilty pleasures, um, and I, I would. Uh, this is definitely not one to feel guilty about. I think this is just rip roaring um, pleasure <laughs> from from start to finish. As, um, it's interesting that Wilbur always said that people should read the books in the order he wrote them, um, and I think this is actually the eighth uh, in that order. Um, and I'm a very as as a historian, I. I, I I find the timeline uh, is, is my god. So I definitely like to start from the, the earliest and, and move forward. So um, it'll be interesting actually to hear from people who've read them in different orders and as to the different experiences you get reading them starting here or starting with where the line. I think about it. I, I, I came to them because I was doing a lot of catching up. I, I think there's a sort of middle period in the 19th century, the sort of the late 19th century, very late 20th century ones set in South Africa. I think I more or less read those in consecutive order. But otherwise, now I was sort of dotting about all over the place. And perhaps one day we must sit down and we'll, we'll present, goodness knows, a month worth of podcasts 
on on the full, complete and utter history of the Courtney family from beginning to end. But in the meantime, we'll be back in the next episode with a look at A Falcon Flies, which introduces us for the first time to Wilbur's other great literary family, the Ballantines. So it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Smith's show is produced by Christopher Wynn. Music by Dewey DeLay.